Hey everyone, Michelle Seidling with another episode of Food Experience Unplugged. Today we'll explore how stress management helps to contribute to building healthy habits. Here to help us do that is workplace wellness speaker Janice Lipman. This podcast is available on multiple platforms, including YouTube, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and others, as well as our website at foodexperienceunplugged.com. Please be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform for new content as it becomes available. Please also check out our website at foodexperienceunplugged.com for some free resources as you begin your health journey. Janice Litvin, welcome to Food Experience Unplugged. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Oh, we are so happy to have you as the well, the main, the guru of workplace burnout, stress management, a whole gamut of other topics. And we're so excited to, to really delve into this topic. I'm honored by the descriptor guru. Thank you so much. <laughs> <laughs> to start out with, will you give us an introduction of yourself and tell us what brought you to this point in your life and in your career and other areas? Well, it's a kind of a long convoluted story, but I'll make it as brief as possible. <clears throat> I've always loved to move and dance. I was I actually was a professional dancer for a while, many years ago. And uh, my mother always said, if you get a technical degree, you will get a job, especially as a woman. So I did what she said. I got a degree in math and focused on computer science and got a job as a computer programmer. But I found something out. I didn't really love being a computer programmer. I really loved people. And so after that, I got a job working for a software services vendor this is before the IBM PC came out and that company was Computer Sciences Corporation and I did software support and I really loved the training aspect and the consulting aspect. And then after one mini recession we had in the eighties, I started my business, which back then <clears throat> was called MicroSearch to do consulting and training. Eventually my old boss from CSC called me one day and said, can you find me a DB2 DBA? Back then the DB2 Software was new, the DBA role was new, but I did what any good recruiter did back then before internet. I placed an ad in the San Francisco Chronicle for $700 for a three line ad and I found someone. And the funny part is my mother had been a recruiter but I never planned to be a recruiter. So suddenly we had this huge additional bond. So then I did recruiting for a long time. And then, as you know, we had this big bad recession that began in 2008 there were no jobs, so there was no recruiting. And I was ready for a change, so now I had been doing it for 20 plus years. And so what do you do when you have nothing else to do, or at least before COVID, you went to the gym. So every day I dropped my son off at high school and went straight to the gym, because that's the best, you have to be ready. And that's where I found Zumba. So then I became a Zumba instructor in 2009. I'm still doing Zumba now, 11 years later, loving it. But I needed another mental challenge. I really felt like I needed something else to do. So I did a lot of research and I thought, how can I combine Zumba with the workplace? And I found the world of workplace wellness. So that was several years ago. I went back to school to study personal training for the psychology, the nutrition, the physiology, and the anatomy. And then I bundled that all that up with my other background work in human resources and decided to start working in workplace wellness. Okay. Wow. That is amazing. I love, <laughs> I love that journey. Just really working, kind of understanding your talents and understanding yes. where you can contribute. And that's yes. fantastic. And oh. I feel now that I've really found my passion project, so to speak, my passion 
activity is helping people change their lives. Okay, excellent. And that's, you know, what better place to do that than the workplace? Yeah. That's where we spend most of our time, (laughs) many of us. So absolutely. Well, you, one of your areas of focus is stress management, which is what we want to cover today and just how that helps to build healthy habits, whether, whether your those habits are in the workplace or elsewhere, but to kind of start off, I guess, on a technical note, so to speak, what is stress? We kind of know what it is, but, but from your professional point of view, what is it? Well, it's interesting. I think a lot of people, like you say, kind of know when they're stressed, but from a technical point of view, and this definition comes from my sports background and the American College of Sports Management, which is the grandfather of all sports and fitness associations. They say the body's response to any demand for change. So for example, if you are running your body is stressed, so to speak. The body is always looking for homeostasis, which as you probably know, is um, a balance, so to speak, an area where you're not too high or too low, so to speak. And so when you're running, you have to challenge your body. Well, it's the same Mm -hmm. thing with stress. Your emotions are running, so to speak. And so uh, that's, that's what stress is all about. Okay. So your emotions are running, whether, and that can be positive or negative. Yes, that's right. So, yes. So speaking of positive stress, I was thinking about this before our call today, and Kelly McGonigal has really written a fantastic book about it. But if you think about positive stress, if you look at a fireman running into a building, that person Mm. is qualified and trained, but they have to get their body, their whole heart and mind and soul, and especially their mind, into Mm. gear. So that is an example of positive stress. They have to get their body up, like I said before, running, get their whole body up and running Mm. mentally and physically and emotionally to go into that burning building. Of course, they have training and they know what they're doing, but they're relying on their thinking part of their brain, not the emotion Mm. primarily. Or if you take the example of a mother who runs into a street to protect her child, Mm. yes, it's stressful that the child ran into the street, but there's a a positive benefit of that kind of stress. And the third and final example, which is a more fun example, is when an actor or a speaker is going on stage, they use those butterflies in their stomach in a positive way. They harness that energy and they breathe and they flow and they have a preparation before they go on. I'm sure all actors warm up their throat, warm up their mind, and there are a lot of things they do before they go on stage. That's another example of positive stress. Okay. So if, as in, okay, positive stress, you're going in to be doing some, a fun activity, an uplifting activity to, to oh, help. Yes. Well, I don't <laughs> know how running into a burning building, is that really a fun activity? But, but you're going to be, I guess you're going to be doing some good. Yes, yes. And you, you're okay. thinking of a positive uh, reason for doing that item, doing that thing. Okay. And then we've got on the opposite spectrum, we've got the negative stress. And then so so you're built on the positive stress, you're kind of building yourself up for that for that event or experience. And then so on the negative stress example, so are you trying to calm yourself down or how does that the negative aspect work? Well, that's a very interestingly worded, well-worded question. In that case, stress as most people know who work, who go to a workplace, stress can come upon us, as you know. 
And the trick is to use your mind, not your emotions. So the physiological response to stress, the fight, flight, or freeze response is centered in the fear center of the brain. We call the amygdala. The neuroscientist's definition is the amygdala, the fear center. That's normal. It's normal when we're stressed, whether someone has hurt our feelings or criticized us or been rude or mean or, or punched us physically, our body responds. But in the case of the emotional or the verbal stress, we don't want to live there because we cannot, we lose control. Have you ever had a stressful situation or a fight with a friend and you said, I was so angry, I couldn't think straight. That's a perfect example of the amygdala being in charge. But there are many ways to say to the amygdala, thank you for sharing. Now I'm going to engage my other friend, the prefrontal cortex, the executive functioning part of the brain, and I'm going to let the prefrontal cortex have control, which can stop us from saying something we'll, we know we might regret later, or from hitting send in that email. Have you ever <laughs> wanted to write an angry email to somebody and you think, I'm just going to type this. I'm not going to put their name in the to box, but I'm just going to type this so I can get it off my chest and then not hit send and then erase it. <laughs> so that's the prefrontal cortex, the reasoning part of the brain being the boss. Okay. So it's really a question of, uh, I guess, moving, moving from a negative to a positive in terms of the stress. You could put it in those terms. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And that, you know, that happens, you know, obviously quite a lot with the workplace. Yes. And now how, um, you mentioned sometimes, oh, I'm so stressed, I can't think straight. How does that stress, whether positive or negative, affect our, our ability to make decisions or ability to set goals or habits or anything like that? So in terms of habits and decisions, but actually you asked three, you just now asked three questions at once. So I'm going to okay. try, <laughs> I'm going to try to, one at a time. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try to take them one at a time. I'll give you a perfect example. In one of my weight management programs, a woman, this is a perfect uh, illustration. She said, I went to a party, I'm all excited, you know, I'm gonna see my friends. And I already, she already had planned what she was gonna eat, she had that all worked out. She walks in and as soon as she walks in, she's bombarded with a friend who says something negative or critical. What to do? She somehow composed herself, she stopped, which is an acronym, which I want to talk about later, but I'll throw it in now. Stop, take a breath, observe, proceed. And that was developed by John Kabat-Zinn, the father of modern day mindfulness mm -hmm. and meditation. She stopped herself and she, and she turned around and walked out and she said, I'm going to take a walk. Very, very, very well, very well thought out plan. She took a walk around the block, she composed herself, she breathed, she worked out all the negativity in her mind, she let it all go, she came back to the party and she could be civil to that person and go on and have a good time. That's the prefrontal cortex at work. That's the power of the prefrontal cortex. Wow, okay, so your ability is basically kinda, kinda nip it in the bud, just really address the issue when it first arises rather than- And then, and then the stop. The stop part is really mm -hmm. critical. She didn't react to the person. She said, hi, I've got it. Oh, then she said, oh, I, I just left something in the car. I'll be right back. 
So she excused herself. She didn't have, she didn't have to be snippy. She didn't have to say anything clever. She just excused herself and left. And it was because she had the ability to stop herself from saying anything. It's the stop. Mm. Yeah. That's the first step of the power. And then composing herself, thinking through how she was feeling. She didn't ignore how she was feeling. She thought it through and let it go. That was a very powerful experience for her. Yes. Now that, in, in implementing the stop and then letting it go, is is that easy for people? Or is that, that tends to be kind of, kind of it, a challenge, I would you know, think. It depends on the person. And, and before I give you my answer to how that works, I'm going to preface it by saying that I respect the fact that many people have clinical depression or clinical anxiety. And some of the techniques possibly can work, but these techniques are more geared to people who can choose how they want to think, feel, and behave. Okay. So it's one thing to say, I'm going to wake up today <clears throat> and I'm going to choose to be happy. But I have spoken to people who had clinical depression in the past or in the present and have said to me, I wanted to feel happy, but my brain was like a, a grave fog wouldn't lift in my emotions. I thought that was a very nice analogy of it. So these techniques I'm about to share may or may not work with clinically depressed. I think they can contribute to your mental health, but these are more for people who can control their emotions. And so after you stop, you audit. So I call it stop and audit. It's like stop and frisk, but stop and audit. <clears throat> in the stress audit, and this is described in detail in this version <clears throat> of the book and the free version I'm going to give your listeners later. <clears throat> the stress audit, pardon me. The stress audit, gets people to stop and focus on what happened, how did I feel physically, and we can talk about physical first uh, in a moment, but if you don't pay attention to how you feel physically, sometimes you're not even aware you're upset, you know, in a meeting where you need to control yourself, and somebody, or in a phone call or a Zoom meeting, whatever it is, somebody might speak to you with a harsh tone of voice, or they might have that kind of angry, critical tone or face, facial expression, and you're trying to go on and have a grounded, responsible, mature conversation. Okay. And then after you're like, wow, that guy was kind of a bully. I didn't really like that. And then you begin to feel your body was telling you the whole time how it was reacting. But if you really stop and think, how, what is my body? What, how did my body react? You can know, and some people have knots in the stomach, their heart might race, their palms might get sweaty. There are all kinds of physiological reactions and stress. So the first thing is the physical, and then how did I feel? Did I feel hurt, angry, sad, lonely, tired? You know, all the gamut of emotions, frustrated, angry is a big one. <clears throat> and then what did I say? Did I overreact? Did I say anything? What exacerbating behavior did I engage in? And that means how angry did I get? And how long did I let it go on? Did I let it go on for a week, a day, or an hour? I used to be the kind of person that would get really angry. Let's say the bully conversation, I'd get really angry and I would talk about it all day long for a week, drive my, my family and friends crazy. And then I learned everything that I've written about in my book, I've learned and I've put into practice myself. Not that you're ever there, but you're striving for that higher level. <clears throat> so what did I say? How angry did I get? How long did I stay there? And then the final one, which, which relates to your topic of food is what possible addictive behavior did I engage in? Did I drink more? Did I gamble? Did I smoke? Did I shop? Did I stay in bed all day? Did I eat? 
-hmm. And that's one of my specialties is the eating part. Um, and so we can address the eating now or we can address it later. But oh, that's the, that's the mm -hmm. nutshell of the stress audit is looking at what happened, the inciting incident or the traumatic event, and then how did I react in those various ways. Now, in the, in the issue of food, and by the way, the word addiction is an um, interesting and complex topic. And I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist. My own experience is my guide when it comes to addiction. When we're addicted to food or any product, we get a benefit. It's like you talked about earlier, the positive and the negative stresses. Mm -hmm. There are positive things, reactions we get from overeating. We feel better in some way, especially with chocolate and sugar. Now, in the case mm -hmm. of sugar, Dr. Robert Lustig from UC San Francisco Medical Center, who is a pediatric endocrinologist, teaches us that sugar sets up a reaction in the brain just like cocaine. It releases a happiness chemical, in this case, dopamine. The problem is that the dopamine rush doesn't last too long. And so we go for more. And so there's the addictive pattern of wanting more and more and more. And then we have to build new habits to overcome. So there's a, addiction is part of it and habit building is the other part of it. And so it is my contention based on my experience that when we overeat in reaction to stress, we are looking for love and comfort and support and care. And we can find it in other ways besides a gallon of ice cream. We can find it from a friend, from a family member, even watching a funny video. But the, I, I believe that mostly people are looking for love. Okay. Wow. And, uh, and pretty, they, pretty heavy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> so, so just kind of learning to address that. Is that... Um, you know, just based on the workplace environment, is it harder to think to, or more challenging, I guess, to, to manage that stress to do the stop and then, you know, how you react and, and so forth? Um, is it more challenging in the workplace? Than the home, you mean? Than the home or, you know, if you're active in you the know, community or other, elsewhere? It it depends on the situation. There are toxic workplaces and there are to toxic homes. Mm -hmm. I think it just depends on what you walk into when you walk into that workplace or that home. Hopefully you're surrounding yourself at home where you have some more control with people who love you and care about you and treat you with respect. Mm -hmm. This really opens up another can of worms called setting healthy boundaries, okay. which is also a chapter in my book because if you don't learn to set healthy boundaries and communicate, and this can be done at work also, and communicate to people what your needs are, what your limits are, what you'll put up with in as respectful a way as possible. And I know it's hard in an emotional situation like a marriage or a partnership where you might have a tone of voice when someone bugs you, but knowing what your boundaries are and knowing what you'll put up with. There are a lot of people who never learned how to say no. Mm. Okay. And I was one of them. And once I finally learned how to say no, I, went, I was saying no all over the place. I was like, no, I'm not going to take you to the airport at one o'clock in the morning. No, I'm not going to do your laundry. No. You know what I mean? I started saying no all the time. It's okay to say yes, of course, once you learn how to say no, but you have a choice. And I think that's what a lot of this is all about is having a choice. If you have a manager that's extremely rude, it's okay to go into him or her and say, 
I really respect you as my manager. I learned so much from you, but I don't appreciate it when you talk down to me in front of other people or even when we're alone. I don't mind you communicating whatever it is you need to communicate, but the anger and the tone of voice is very hurtful to me. And I would appreciate if you spoke a little more politely or something, something like that. I also talk about in the book, getting an accountability buddy to practice these difficult conversations that you might need to have. Mm, okay, absolutely. So just kind of kind of forming boundaries with with your boss, perhaps with other colleagues. Yes. And and then at home, you know, with your with your spouse or with your other family members. Yes. Just kind of kind of managing that. So is that the um is that that would be part of the stop, I guess the the stop aspect of it? Well, the stop Maybe. aspect is the knowing yourself. It's okay. all about and the stop and the, the stop and audit, actually, both mm-hmm. of those together is learning who you are. Mm-hmm. And then when you learn who you are, then you can take action. There's another huge piece to learning who you are. And this is about digging into your past. Now, some, not everybody, but some people had critical parents, for example. I'll give you another example of someone who came to me and said, you know, Every time I came home with a 93, which is an A, or it was back when I was in school, (laughs) my parent, either parent, would say, well, what about the other seven points? How about celebrating the A? (laughs) I mean, getting an A, at least for me, was very hard. (laughs) Now, I know for some naturally brainy people, that's not so hard. But still, it's something to be proud of. So why be critical? And I know there are parents, and I had a very critical, brilliant mother, who did teach me to reach for more, but was very critical. And it didn't make me feel good when someone says, well, what about the other seven points? That wasn't Mm -hmm. a good, it wasn't good enough. What happens when you get these messages verbally and non-verbally over your life is you begin to take it all in and believe it and internalize it because it's your parent. That's your guide, your leader, the person you love. And love gets all tangled up with this critical negative person. And you begin to develop limiting beliefs. You begin to think, I'm not good enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not smart enough, I'm not clever enough, I could never ask for a raise, I could never be a public speaker, I could never get what I want at work. And so understanding yourself and whatever your limiting beliefs are, help you unleash them and let them go. And that's also part of the Spanish burnout toolkit. Okay. So really just, just kind of self-reflection a lot. Yes. Yes. It's important. And the other thing that I just added, you and I were talking off screen about keeping adding things. I just added something, which was as much pain emotionally was permeating part of my childhood. I also could forgive my mother because I loved her very much. And I knew that she deep, deep down, she was doing the best she could. And she learned the lessons that she imparted on me from her parent. And I'm sure it went back generations. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a funny expression out there that says, mama passed down more than the China. <laughs> mama passed down all these behavior patterns. And so you want to stop the chain and stop the pattern so that you don't become that same kind of parent to your children. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Excellent point. Now, was that, you mentioned, you know, you had to, to overcome some limiting beliefs as well. Was it challenging over the years to really, to manage your stress and re, redirect your energies? 
Absolutely, very much so. When I was in my 20s, I exhibited all these kinds of behavior that I've described. And thankfully, I had friends and boyfriends that would say, you know, you're really angry. And that, that thing, whatever it was, wasn't that big a deal. And, and you complain and complain for days. That wasn't that big a deal. Why are you so angry? And when once I heard that message repeatedly over years, mm -hmm. I finally realized maybe I would want to start doing some work on myself. And I did seek the help of a professional psychologist uh, who happened to be Jungian, for those mm -hmm. who know who Jung was. Mm -hmm. And I, under, I learned, began to learn how to dig deep and understand who I was, who my mother and father and all these other people, <laughs> other people in my head, they're all there. All those tapes are there and they're constantly playing. Whether it's you saying something to yourself or a message that's just kind of in there in the brainwaves. I had to learn to, to unpack, I call that in unpacking your emotional baggage, mm. to unpacking and put a reality spin. No, I'm not that stupid. I thought I was stupid because I didn't make all A's because I always had that message. You didn't make all A's. Why didn't you, you made all A's before? Why didn't you, your brother makes all A's, you know, all those kinds of messages. <laughs> and I had to mm. say to myself, I'm not stupid. So I didn't make all A's. There are many, we've learned since, there are many kinds of intelligence, as you know, emotional intelligence is one of them. And I thank God I'm very <laughs> naturally uh, high in emotional intelligence. Maybe I don't have textbook intelligence, but there are other kinds of intelligence that can serve you well at work. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Now, you mentioned, you know, unpacking baggage or different experiences. You know, if you think of the workplace in general, you probably have a whole gamut of different experiences, people who have unpacked, who have not unpacked. Yes. So how does that how does that, I guess, gel or really kind of mesh in the workplace? Well, there's a few, I have a few comments, obviously. Um, <laughs> it is my contention that everyone in the workplace has come with their own set of baggage, mm -hmm. as you said. Sure. And it's including the manager. Now, many managers, I would say most, I haven't found a stat, although I've asked my expert friends, most managers get promoted for technical, still, technical skills, not emotional intelligence and not empathy, though emotional intelligence and empathy can be taught if somebody wants to and is becoming a much more popular topic, thankfully. And the World Economic Forum has declared that emotional intelligence will be more important than technical skills from here on out, especially for managers. So the, it starts with the manager. The manager's got to unpack his or her bags first. And then they can facilitate the unpacking of everybody else's bags. Of course, you don't want to air all your dirty laundry that's in your baggage, but you want to go home and work on it so that you can come to work with an even playing field. And here's some things to look at for a manager. When someone is not acting themselves or you have someone who's overreacting and acting out, so to speak, like a child, then that person <coughs> is living in their old baggage. Mm. People who overreact and act like children, which there are many, and who make demands that are unreasonable and always have to get their way and think their way is always right and won't listen to other opinions, those people are living in some old baggage. Mm. And we don't need to help, we don't need to make them unpack their baggage at work, but we need to just point out to them that they might want to go home and buy this book <laughs> and, <laughs> un and start unpacking their baggage and learning that their behavior is not working for the team. A cohesive team is a team of people who are living in a reality situation and learning to get along as a team. 
which obviously means they have to negotiate for for their decisions and put other people before themselves. And I think it's important for me, uh, this is a whole segue on managers. I think it's important for managers to spend the time, even in this time of a pandemic, when people are not together, we have functions like this, we have Zoom and other kinds of video communication tools to really spend the time with their people one-on-one and one-to-many and have these mental health visits and how's everybody doing. And I noticed your work is a little bit suffering. What's going on? Is somebody sick at home? Do you have to manage your children's schoolwork at the same time as your work? Would you like me to reshuffle some of your priorities? A good boss is paying attention and is clear on what's happening with that person. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really an excellent point because I mean, really, the uh, the, the buck doesn't stop there. Or I guess it starts there with the manager, right. as you said. Right. Yes. Now, in terms of balance, because, you know, you hear stories about, you know, stressful work situations and the person bring brings it home, so to speak. They bring their stresses home. And I guess you can also have, you know, the other way around when you've got home stresses and bringing that. How can you how can you either balance or really try to try to not bring your stresses to one place or the other? Is that even possible? Uh, You know, that's a very, very important and good point. If you're not paying attention, then you are carrying your stress around on your shoulders from one place to another. But using the tools in this book, the stop and audit and some other mindfulness techniques, unpacking your bags, doing the reality spin, learning how to set boundaries, all these pieces add up to a person who is aware. Now, of course, if someone has a generic bad day and they come home and Maybe the spouse says, how was your day? And they explode. Obviously, they had a bad day. And they're just trying to, they haven't had a chance to process it. Maybe they need to go for a walk alone or with their partner. Maybe they want to have one glass of wine. Maybe they just want to sit alone in a room and think and journal or read a funny book or just be alone. Mm. So when you enter the home from work or the work from home, you do have to have time to stop an audit. And it can be a one minute audit. It doesn't have to be the big writing process. It can be a one minute check-in. How am I feeling? Wow, I know I had a bad day. I hope I don't unload it on my family. Um, and so on your way home, that can also be the time that you can do the stop, the mental stop and audit and just check in with yourself and make sure that you don't unload all the stress from work on your family. Mm, good, good point. So that, that commute time can be beneficial in that regard. It can so. be, yes. And speaking of commuting, I always use this example in my talks. When you're fighting traffic, that's one of the most stressful moments for many people. And, you know, we're not there right now, but I think we will get there sometime in the next year. You can sometimes choose not to commute during the big rush hour. I know many people are on a schedule, like nurses and a lot of people, construction people. But... If you have to commute during that very difficult hour, try to remember that you choose how to react. You choose whether you're going to let that stress bother you or you change your behavior and you say, I hate traffic. Friday afternoon traffic, so stressful. I can't stand it. I got to go home during during rush hour. I have no choice. I'm going to put on a funny audio. I'm going to put on an audio book that I'm loving listening to 
or I'm going to listen to some soft music, but you have to have a strategy or traffic's going to drive you crazy. And then you are going to be stressed when you, by the time you get home. (laughs) Oh, absolutely. Good point. Yes. Just kind of not only having that, it's not just that time, but what you're doing with that time. Especially. Or like, or like I said before, maybe processing what happened at work and then letting it go during that time. Mm, mm, Definitely. Now the letting go part is that's maybe challenge. I'm thinking that's probably challenging for some people. And, and you, uh, we'll, we'll talk about your your book uh, later here in a few minutes, but in terms of how did, how do you let it go? You're able to stop. You've got the stop cycle. And then is there a cycle for letting go? The whole, the stop and audit is the first part of the letting go. And you're right. Letting go is extremely difficult. But I want to say that with enough practice, the letting go will come easier and sooner and sooner and sooner. And let me give you an example. I went to the grocery store to buy a gift for my son's girlfriend. And it had to be, she wanted this one particular gift card from her favorite store. <laughs> and I was on a tight budget because I had to go to the gym first and I had to get the gift and get home and shower and all that. I got to the, and I actually called this particular store to make sure they had her favorite gift card. <laughs> I get there and I can't find it. Mm, and this oh. place has so many gift cards and I'm looking, looking, looking up and down, walking around, feeling myself get angry. And this is after I began writing the book and done a lot of work on myself. And I feel myself running a tape in my head. I can't believe these people are so stupid. I called, why didn't they tell me? So I have this whole dialogue in my head. I'm going to have to go all the way up to the front of the store. I'm running out of time. Oh my gosh. And as I'm walking up to the front of the store, I stopped and said to myself, is this degree of anger appropriate for this situation? Mm. Has anybody broken their leg or has there been a car accident? No. And this is not important. So you need to stop and you need to choose to be positive. And it's not the person in the front who you go talk to. It's not their fault that you can't find the gift card. So you have to stop being so negative. And I turned it around in that moment and I went up to them and with a big smile on my face, I said, would you please help me? I can't find this blah, blah gift card. Please help me. And it was there. I just couldn't find it. Mm-hmm. And so that's, that's kind of a semblance of letting go as learning to catch your thoughts. And okay. when you do the exercises, the stop and audit and understanding what characteristic behavior patterns are, overreacting, exaggerating, putting shoulds on yourself, and do a lot of this unpacking of your emotional baggage, sooner and sooner and sooner, this stop in my head process will happen. And then you'll ask yourself, is this degree of anger appropriate for this situation? So the whole goal of the book and the process is teaching people to stop and observe their behavior and then ask, is this degree of anger commensurate with the situation? Mm, I love that. I love really the, just that introspection. You know, of course, it's probably it's challenging when you're in the moment, but yes. being able to step out for a minute and assess yourself. And it uh, happens now for me sooner and sooner. It's not perfect. I mean, things happen and we're human beings. We react. But we can ask ourselves, how do I want to react? How do I really want to react? Of course, sometimes we get tired, you know, things or other things are going on and we, we let our, our stress awareness level drop down a little, but the goal is to get enough sleep, to eat properly, to exercise and to really take care of yourself 
so that you can be sharp and aware as much as possible. Okay. So there you're kind of alluding to, to things that you can do, but what are some some steps, you know, you've got sleep, et cetera. What are things people can do when they're, you know, either want to prevent that or just realizing that, okay, this stress is going to take over my life if I don't do something about it. So. The easiest thing they can do until they get this book or bring it to their organization <laughs> to uh, do a workshop, the easiest thing they can do is to buy a journal or take out a piece of paper and start writing. There's an extremely powerful thing that happens when you write. And it's been well documented over the years. In fact, I recently heard Daniel Pink on a webinar say, you don't even know what you're thinking until you write. When you write, and if possible, I know there's a lot of people that like to use their phones and a lot of people type, but if you can use your handwriting with a piece of paper, as you're writing the words, there's like this automatic, magical process that happens and these words just sort of land on the page and you're like you could look back and read it and you go I didn't even know I was thinking feeling or thinking that and stuff comes up from the past that you didn't even know applied and I'll give you an example one day I was sneezing and I felt myself getting sick and a friend came over and she said oh are you sure it's not allergies and I got really and that's in some ways, it's an innocuous question, but I got really, really angry. We ended up having a little tiff about it. And then I decided maybe I need to write because I felt like I had overreacted and she was upset. And so I started writing. And in the process of writing, I realized that when my father was very ill, that led sadly to his demise, mm. I got sick. And I went to the doctor and I said, I need to go home but I feel sick. Would you give me an antibiotic? This is when you could still ask for an antibiotic. And she said, well, are you sure it's not allergies? And I got really angry at that doctor. And I started kind of overreacting to the doctor. My father's on his deathbed. I want to go home. And I didn't know that I was hanging on to those feelings when my friend said, are you sure it's not allergies? Mm. And I found that out by doing this process of writing. Wow. that That's incredible. Just really bringing out the past or I guess even making peace with the past, I suppose. Yes. And that's, again, as part of the letting go. Absolutely. So what are some, you've, I'm sure you've worked with a lot of different organizations and individuals. What are some success stories or examples of people who have really learned to manage their stress and build, build healthy habits at work? build healthy when they go home, you know, how, how have they really learned to, I guess, implement that stop and letting go and everything in between? Well, there's a number of ways. Um, <clears throat> if they've worked the exercises, well, one of the, my favorite things to do is have group, a group dynamic and mm -hmm. do this program in a workshop setting because we actually do these exercises together. And to the degree people are able and willing to share what they're writing. We actually take a few minutes and we do some writing. And then I have people work in groups of two or three and I give them some time to actually do and share what they learned. And then we come back as a group and we work through and all kinds of issues come up. It's just amazing that all other, another whole set of workplace issues come up. 
how to interact with your with your assistant, <clears throat> how to communicate with an employee that you might be struggling with if you're the manager. Just all kinds of things come up. And so that's where the power really, really happens. Yes, you have to work on yourself and there's you and you and your workbook and your paper. Mm-hmm. But in a group setting, a, in a group discussion, a lot of power can happen and a lot of imp- that's where the most impact happens. And then people can take those lessons home and take it from there. Okay. Now, have you, um, you know, in your in your workings with with the organizations or with people, have you received any any f- feedback or things like that? Like, wow, like my my stress levels gone down, or this happened, or that happened. What are some of the, I guess, the results of their efforts, so to speak? Absolutely. Yes, I hear from people that tell me all kinds of things. Like, I'll give you an example of a recent workshop we did. People wrote to me and said. I can't believe I got this amazing idea about engaging with my assistant. And mm. there was another assistant in the room who had been an, an executive assistant for 25 years. And that was her career. And she turned around to, so sometimes I'm facilitating other people's ideas because mm. I know a lot of things, but I don't know everything. And so this executive assistant turned around and said to this other woman across the room, why don't you invite your assistant to the meeting and then she'll understand your priorities because the first person <laughs> had been complaining, I always have to micromanage and make sure what she's working on. And she said, if you engage her in the meeting, then you can be communicating and she can understand the whole flow of work and the process. And that was an extremely powerful moment. And I thought, wow. So I had never been an executive assistant at that level. So I didn't have that answer, but I thought it was a very powerful moment. Another is the case where someone described a boy on her son's basketball team, a 17 year old boy threw a chair against the wall at a basketball game when he, when the referee voted against him or whatever the word Mm -hmm. is ruled against him. And it reminds me of Draymond Green. For those of you in the San Francisco Bay area and love the Warriors, though they're not doing that well now, but they used to be, as you know, and we love Draymond Green. He's an amazing player, but he used to always get so angry at the refs that he would get thrown out of the game. And this boy who threw the chair against the wall, it occurred to me that he learned that behavior somewhere. Hmm. And this mother could write to me and say, now I realize what I needed to do. And just not let this behavior go on and on. So a lot of these ideas of not unpacking your baggage come from childhood quite often. It could be, issues could come from a parent, a teacher, a social situation, different friends or other leaders that had an impact on a child, a clergyman maybe. And so it's important for the parent as they're raising their child, when they see irrational behavior, to nip it in the bud and say, we don't throw a chair at a basketball game. That's not appropriate. Because our goal as a parent, of course, is to raise a vibrant, thriving emotionally successful child. But if you don't teach them how to behave and how to manage their emotions to the degree you can, then they're going to go out in the world and demand every, this is what happens. This is how you create people in the workplace who demand always winning every argument. Mm. And so a lot of these things that I teach also apply to parents teaching their children because in the workplace, there are a lot of two-year-olds running around the workplace who haven't unpacked their baggage. Mm, good, good point. So I, I love that. I love how how in your work, just people are maybe 
un, I guess unintentionally, just naturally helping each other with different comments or sharing experiences. And just really, I love how you get to get to the heart of the matter, like pull it, pull it out of the childhood and just really see that their the workplace is a better place. So in a recent, uh, as, an, as an adjunct to that, in a recent workshop, a woman said, as people were working on their exercises and I was walking around the room to see how everybody was doing, a woman said to me, you know, I'm a glass half full kind of person. Some of these behavior issues didn't apply to me. I, I luckily had a really wonderful set of parents that were very positive and supported me. And I said, you know, you're very lucky. I, I, I don't know the statistics offhand, but I'm, I'm guessing that many people don't, didn't have that kind of luck. And, and it made me realize that, yes, she may not need to unpack her emotional baggage, but I bet she knows somebody who does at work. Maybe she's a manager and she can help her people, or maybe she's a parent who can help a child. And so just because you yourself don't need to unpack your emotional baggage, I bet you know somebody who does. A great point, because you'll at least have that as a resource. Exactly. You know, if, if you encounter someone who does, or maybe you will at a future time, and you can reflect back. Exactly. So, excellent. Wow. So Janice, how can people get in contact with you for more information and to buy this, this great book that I see in the background? Thank you. Yes. <laughs> so this is called the Banished Burnout Toolkit. It is a workbook and every exercise has a lot of room to write. And of course, you can always buy a journal and do more writing and I hope you will. But for you listeners, there is a first review copy. It doesn't have all the latest updates to the book, but this book will be out or is out now, but the free version is on my website at the banishburnouttoolkit.com. You'll be able, you'll put in your name and email address. You'll be able to download a version of the book. And then I occasionally will email you. I don't do a lot of emailing. I know we all get too many emails and you can always unsubscribe, but you will be on my email list. And then my, my, the other part of my website is JaniceLitvin.com. If you want the latest version of the book, it's on Amazon and it's at JaniceLitvin.com and you'll click on the book tab. Mm -hmm. Excellent. Janice, you can see, well, the letters are tiny, but Litvin is L-I-T-V-I-N, JaniceLitvin.com. Excellent. Wow. Well, we will make sure that all of that information is in the show notes so people can check out the okay. book, check out your work. And, and by the way, I'm extremely active on LinkedIn. Anybody who connects with me and lets me know where they found out about me, I'll certainly say yes. And I'll respond to any messages there on LinkedIn. I love getting to know people on LinkedIn. Wonderful. Excellent. Well, we will include that as well. Excellent. So Janice, it's been a pleasure. I, you are a wealth of knowledge of all things workplace wellness and managing stress and, and everything in between. So really, thank you. Thank you for, for a fabulous discussion. Thank you so much. I'm so happy to have been here and I really appreciate your time.